0: We're studying the book of Nehemiah, and we are nearing, well, beginning to come to the end of our study of Nehemiah. This section we're in, chapter 8, 9, and 10, in some ways is uh, uh, spiritually speaking and theologically speaking in the center of the book. On the little uh, pad up here, I've written a couple of things which I think are important for us to understand what is going on here. So let me just go through this, and we're going to dig into chapters 9 and 10. What we covered last week <clears throat> was chapter 8, which I think I shared my prejudice. This is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, uh, because you see um, people responding to, interacting with, engaging with the Word of God, and the response of the people. And Ezra is on a platform, he's reading the Word of God, reading from the law, that Either all of the first five chapters or parts of the first five chapters, what they call the Torah or the Pentateuch, but anyway, and the response of the people, they intellectually engage, uh, the, 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 the Levites are circling through the people, explaining the text to them, in some cases maybe translating it from Aramaic into Hebrew, and then secondly is that emotional response. As their minds and, and hearts engage with the Word of God, there's weeping, there's mourning, there's... There's lamenting of their unfaithfulness to God in the past, particularly their, their, uh, their parents and grandparents and so on. And then there's that incredibly striking response of obedience. And as we talked last week, that is often the way God, God works among his people. There's the engagement intellectual; You understand what God's word is saying. And it's often that response of emotion. God is an emotional being. He created us in his image. We are emotional beings. And then the intended response that God always has is obedience. People do not always respond that way, but in this case they did. And there is the renewal of of one of the feasts that was right at that period of time, the Feast of Booths. So I'm not going to go through all that. But I concluded, and this is very, very significant historically, because these are the exiles. They've come back from the 70 years of exile. This is a small group, somewhere around 50,000 or so. But they are renewing their commitment to the Lord. They're renewing their commitment to their entire religious system, the sacrifice of the high priest, etc., etc. But what is important is they are now people of the book. And as I said last week, when you trace the history of the people of Israel, from here on out, they will be focused on the book, not idolatry, not idol worship. The exile cleansed the Jewish people of their penchant for idolatry. So now what you have is they become people of the book, this di- disciplined focus on the law. Now tragically, what results from that, because remember, this will just about be at the point till we're done, of that 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, until the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, that's 400 years. And during that time, that a group of people, Hasidim, they're officially called, but then they become the Pharisees, who are so meticulous in their conformity and teaching and adherence to, to the law that they become the champions of legalism, a legalistic form of righteousness, which is one of the tragedies and Jesus confronted it. But that's not where we are here. So this spiritual renewal of the people will lead now in chapters 9 and 10 to a renewal of their covenant commitment to God. And this is a rich section, so we're going to take our time through this, but if, if we're, you to really understand this, you have to really understand what happened here. So my question to you is, particularly those of you who were here last week, do you understand what happened in chapter 8? Mm-hmm. Yes. These are the people of those, those 50,000, 60,000 exiles who've returned from the, from the uh, uh, Babylonian, Persian area, they're in Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the wall, the city is secure. Now, with this incredible reading of the law, this renewal spiritually of their walk with God, they engage the word with their minds, emotionally and they respond with obedience. Now, now they begin, and we even read at the end there, that the leaders of the clans gather together and say, we want to have a Bible study. And they're, they're constantly an ongoing study of the word of God. That Bible said, I made that up, but that's really (laughs) what they're doing. And it's really, it's an amazing thing to see. So as they are back and reconstituting everything, their renewal to the Lord is real and deep-seated. And so then what naturally will follow is a commitment to renew the covenant. Now, that has to be discussed just a little bit, because when you hear the word covenant, you're going to think of several covenants in your mind. At least, I hope, you're going to think about several covenants in your mind. You could be thinking about the Abrahamic covenant. You could be thinking about the Davidic covenant. Or you could be thinking about the Mosaic covenant. So in this case, they are renewing their covenant commitments under the Mosaic covenant, but through the framework of the the Abrahamic covenant. Now, does, does that make sense to you? That sentence I just uttered. They're going to renew their commitment to the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the sacrifices, the feast days, all of those things. But they're going to be doing that through their understanding of God's unconditional unilateral covenant with them as the people of God, the Jews, the children of Israel. And so they're they're renewing it. it's a self understanding of who they are in the eyes of God and his immense grace in choosing them, not because they earned it, but he chose them. And now they're renewing their part of the covenant commitment under the Mosaic covenant, but because of God's covenant commitment to them. And we're going to see, as we move into chapter 9, get through the introduction, what I want to do, we're going to read all it's a long historical section because you're going to see the beginning, they're going to confess their sins nationally, and there's a long historical review, which I want to go over. And then we'll see at the end, we're not going to get that far, but we'll see they actually reiterate their covenant commitment, and all the leaders of the clan sign a document that this is what we are committing ourselves to. And it's really a remarkable, uh, almost unprecedented thing to see in the scriptures where you see a group of people recommitting themselves to the Lord within the grid of the the Mosaic Covenant, but even they're so serious about it, they sign it and affix their signet rings to it. They're really taking this seriously. So I just want to go through all that, because this is a remarkable part of the history of Israel, and it really is. And so um, that's what we're going to study. Got it? Got the framework? Any questions? Yes. So you understand all that? What? (laughs) How can you? (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding. kidding.
1: We were just kidding. Uh, I did the same same thing in class. Um,
0: Can you uh, restate both the mosaic and the abrahamic covenant? Uh, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, because when you ask a question like that, uh, I'm just going to do it very very simply, okay, yes. very basically. The Abrahamic covenant, it's reiterated over and over and over in the New Testament. It's first stated in Genesis 12. It's a threefold promise God makes to Abraham. Promise number one is, seed: your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea, that's how God puts it. Second is land. Genesis twelve 7. I'm going to promise you land. Later on in Genesis, God even gives the boundaries of the land. It's, it's quite specific. It's basically what we call today the land of Israel, plus lots of other. And then thirdly is a blessing, that in you, this is verse 3 of Genesis 12, in you all the nations will be blessed. So it's land, seed, and blessing. That's the easiest way to remember the three-part. The other thing about the Abrahamic covenant is it is unilateral and it's unconditional. It is not dependent on Abram's obedience. It is God unilaterally, unconditionally, say, "I am going to do this." And throughout the Old Testament, even as even even when the Jewish people are sent into exile, uh, which we're just now they're, they're done with that, they're they're coming back. Even when they're God says, "I will not forget the covenant I gave you." Oh, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I how can I give you up? The ones whom I love and have made a commitment to. God is absolutely promising to fulfill those three promises. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional and bilateral. The, Abraham, the Mosaic Covenant, you distill it down to one simple sentence. It's how the children of Israel, before Jesus Christ came, how the children of Israel were to walk with God. And it's got two two major parts. Part one is the sacrificial system, which is how God atoned for their sin. The word atone is used in the text. It, atone means to cover. How God would cover their sins, but it was ongoing. They had to do it. They had to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. The second part of the Mosaic covenant then was the the aspects that would characterize their walk with Him. And so God, in establishing this covenant says, everything you do, I want you to think about me. And so he gives them food laws. You know, we call it kosher, kosher law. So that every time you're preparing meals, every time you're eating, you're thinking about me. And he gives them stipulations on how he wants them to make their clothing. I mean, it's just everything. God is giving a comprehensive way to live not as legalistic righteousness, but because you are my people and because you have had your sins atoned for through the sacrifices, this is how you want to this is how I want you to walk with me. And so it is they are to think about him and worshipfully serve him in every dimension of their life. But it is conditional. If you do not if you do not obey me, then I will discipline you. You are my people. I chose you. you. Didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. I just chose you. And so, therefore, part of that is if, and this is in Deuteronomy 28, for example, if you continue in your idolatry, I will send you into exile. You're going to lose your land for a period of time, uh, you're going to lose the temple for a period of time. And that's exactly what happened in 586 BC. That's a simple, okay? So, chapter 9. This is now. We've had the spiritual renewal there. Now, people of the book, look at look at verses one uh, through five. I'm going to read the whole thing, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about it. Okay. Now, on the twenty fourth day of this month, the month is Tishri, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Good night. What's that all about? Did someone die? Or, or no? This is this is really a, a remarkable manifestation, demonstration of the, their sorrow for their sin. They have just been re- reviewing all of the things that are in the law, at least in the first uh, five books of the of the uh, Old Testament. They've heard who is God, who are they, why God chose them, what he wants them to do, and so on. And they understand why God sent them into exile. Now they're back. And so there's this mourning in the face. And so as the Israelites separated themselves from the foreigners, we had read about that earlier, they're not to intermarry with the Samaritans or, or the Amorites or the Moabites or any of those who surrounded them. They stood... And please note that they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers.
1: Well, they not only confessed
0: their sins, they confessed, confessed their ancestors. That's correct. That's correct. Now, Woody and I had arranged to set this up. He were going to ask that question, and I was going to lead into this great question for all of you. Why would they do that? What does the word confess mean? Agree. 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 That's exactly what it means. To confess is to agree. With whom are they agreeing? God. With whom are they agreeing? God, about what? What are they agreeing with God about? Their sins. Their sins. In other and they're saying, and you will see, you, you see this in Jeremiah, you see this in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, God is praying, or uh, excuse me, Dan, Daniel is praying to the Lord, he's trying to figure out some things and understand some things that God had said to him in, in chapter 9, and it says he confesses the sins of his people. And what, I mean, what does that mean? Uh, well, in this context and in the context of Daniel, Lord, we agree We agree with your evaluation of how we have lived. We agree with your justice in sending us into exile to discipline us. And we agree with your evaluation of how inadequate we are to be your people. It says to us in 1 John 1, 9, in the New Testament, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. that is in the context in 1 John chapter 1 of how you walk with God verse 6 the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing verse 9 you're agreeing with God continually about your sins and 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 you have an advocate who is Jesus Christ the righteous standing at the right hand of the Father defending you because of who you are you're his child So that confession is not, it's not about salvation in 1 John 1, 9. This isn't about salvation in Nehemiah chapter 9. These are people who already made a faith commitment to God. They are agreeing with what God had done in sending them into exile. They're not ticked off with God. They're not lamenting what God had done. They're saying, we agree with your evaluation of the iniquities of our fathers what you did oh god was right it was just and so you have this remarkable consensus among i'm going to assume it's thousands of people about what god had done and they're in this state i mean visibly of mourning not because someone had died but just mourning in as they've read or actually heard read to them the law and all that God, who God is and what He has done for them, they're just reminded, "Oh my!" And so there's just there's this reaffirmation. We know who we are. We know who you are, and your amazing grace to us. Amen. That's that kind of that kind of a of a situation among the people of Israel, just like for you and me. And I'm sure. You know, it's pretty good sized groups today. So, but if we had time to go around, you all would affirm that. You understand right. the longer you walk with the Lord and the more deeply your commitment to, to Him becomes, the more you really realize I am a sinner. Yes. But by the grace of God, I'm not where I want to be. But praise God, I'm not where I was. Hallelujah. Because of the grace of God. And so it's this, it's this kind of, of demeanor and temperament that you're seeing reflected among these now people of the book, the exiles who are back in the land and renewing now their covenant commitment to the Lord, to Yahweh Elohim. And so you have this, this remarkable description in verse 3 and they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. Now, I don't usually do this, but I want to stress this. The law of Yahweh their Elohim. Yahweh is that powerful, and capital L, capital O, capital R, that's always Yahweh. That self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe. And Elohim, Elohim is the name for God used in creation, Genesis 1. And for a quarter of the day, so for three hours, they stood and read from the book. For another quarter of it, another three hours, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. People of the book, resulting in agreeing with God, resulting in worship. That's the way it should be. That described, that should describe you and me today. Different contexts, we're no longer under the law, but the same kind of, of, of spiritual renewal that is ongoing. That's one of the reasons you go to church. And I don't necessarily mean the specific building, but it's one of the reasons you go to read, to hear from the Word of God, to hear it explained, to agree with God about your condition, and to worship Him. Yes. Now you can say to me, well, I do that on a golf course. It's a very flippant way to talk about your worship, but I suppose you can worship. You can worship the Lord at your work. You can worship a Lord, the Lord driving nails into a board. But that's, the context of this is the same context of you going to church. You are corporately with other people who love the Lord, reading from the word of God, hearing it explained, responding and agreeing with how God looks at you and his amazing grace in worshiping him. Because proper understanding of God through His Word necessitates worship, and that's what's going on. And this, this, this is an amazing situation, as 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 Nehemiah is trying to record what is happening to these people. These people are undergoing in Mas the whole kit and caboodle of them, thousands of them, a spiritual revival that will have lasting consequences for, for many, many, many decades. Oh, please, yeah. On, the, on our side of the cross, are we not encouraged not to look back? Yes and no. Yes, we are encouraged to not look back. In Philippians 3 13 and 14, Paul says, I press on. I do not look back. I do not look back and wallow in my old habits and old patterns of sin. But now I press on to the high calling which is the prize in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> You don't look back. However, while you do look back in remembering the things that God has done, you are in a situation, and it's you know it's extremely difficult. It could be a medical condition, it could be a financial condition, it could be a, a, a situation with your children. I mean, just so many different things could happen, and you're you're really you're doubting whether God is really going to help you this time. Another way of putting it, will God be faithful to me this time? And so in the psalmist, that's one of the reasons we're going to study the psalm. The psalmist does this a lot. And then the psalmist will say, and then I remembered. And he, I've talked about this before, but he remembers the faithfulness of God in the past. So Lyle, you're looking back not to wallow in your past sins, but you're looking back to remind yourself, has God been faithful to me? So if he has been faithful to me in the ninety seven things I just itemized, I'm making that up. but the nine you know will he be faithful to me tomorrow? The answer should be in your heart. yes, he will. He is a faithful God. I often say, I can't remember if I've ever used that here or not, but I often say to individuals that I'm talking to or struggling with a particular Issue or disease, a very good friend of mine has a very aggressive form of cancer. And I often can, he has said this a couple of times, how important that is. I often say to him and to others, trust in his promises, rest in his character. And you think about that. Trust in his promises. What did Jesus promise? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you till the end. I'm coming back for you. Hang in there. That's their promises. Rest in his character. Is God good? Yes. Is he just? Yes. Has he been faithful? Yes. So rest in that. And that's the challenge because sometimes the invisible hand of God working is just that. It's invisible. And you kind of say, are you still with me, God? And sometimes that's what we're going to read as we start in in, in verse 7. They are going to review verse after verse after verse after verse after verse verse our history. To do what? to show that God has been faithful to them, <gasps> despite their sin, and periodic rebellion against Him. So does that? I, that was a yeah, long answer to your question, but answer. that is the way to dissect that. How we how we, we put that together? It's a great question. Uh, yeah. So the, they're they're
1: looking at it in the, in the mosaic sense, but they're looking back clear back to Abraham, absolutely, and they they were. Involved. They throughout the Old Testament, they say the God of Abraham,
0: Isaac, and Jacob. Constantly. They are people of the covenant. The Abrahamic covenantal promises to them were real, kept them going, and that was important to God because He kept telling them, This is who I am. And as you remember, what was, and we'll see that, what was the greatest example of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people?
1: Uh, so many, of yeah. the sea and...
0: Yeah, the Exodus. The whole Exodus event. Everything that was about that. Because that, that was the seminal event in their history. That's when they became a people. And it's... Uh, so I'm going to read some about it. Can I finish this? be all right? just this yeah. little... Part. <laughs> so, well, I think
1: the, the, the Jews look back every year and the, the end of the for their sins for the past year. But then once... The prophecies
0: of the test were filled, and, and Christ comes, then all those sins are yep. then atoned for at that point in time. Yep. Forever. Verse four. On the stairs the Levites stood. Now what we think is going on here is these Levites, and I'm not going to read all their names, but the Levites are leading the people in prayer. They're leading them in prayer. This is a corporate gathering. This is the people of God in community, worshiping, confessing, praying. And apparently the Levites are leading. It just lists them. These are we've been introduced to some of these guys earlier in chapter eight. Verse five, then the Levites again this list uh, said, Stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So you have the Levites again. You have all of their names there. They're listed twice. You have their names. They're leading the people in corporate prayer. And the essence of their leadership is what? Stand up. Bless the Lord your God. Bless Yahweh your Elohim from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. Your worship for him will be eternal. Blessings be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And you have this mixture that you see throughout the Bible and that perhaps is a part of your worship time on a Sunday, the mixing of prayer and praise, prayer and praise. An element of our prayers, and I'm not trying to sit down a legalistic talking point here, but an element of our prayer as we grow in the Lord is adoration, adoration. Remember the little acrostic, A-C-T-S? I did that a couple of months ago. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's a way to, do you remember that? Okay. And so again, how does that start? With adoration. And praising, praising the Lord, exalting the Lord. And um, you see it here. So the Levites, and I like this too, because remember, the Levites are the spiritual leaders of the nation. They had two responsibilities. They were to make sure, organize, facilitate, and carry out the sacrifices, but they were also to teach the people the law. That was their responsibility. And so it's appropriate that in this section, it's the Levites who are taking the spiritual leadership. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And so here you see them doing that. So that was just a wonderful section based on what happened in chapter 8, which we studied last week, now you see these exiles who are back in the land, the temple's rebuilt, the wall is rebuilt, the city of Jerusalem secure. Now they're, they're, they're responding to hearing the word of God and all the things we talked about last week in national confession, but also national worship. And by national, I, you know, corporate, that's a better word. Corporate confession and corporate worship. Uh, and here, this, this, these are different people. Than the ancestors who went into exile 70 some years earlier, weren't they? There's different people. The exile cures the Jewish people of their penchant for idolatry. For the rest of their history, you will never see the Jewish people struggle with idolatry. Because their exile that God sent to His discipline cured them of that. Now they're people of the book, at least for a while. <laughs> I'm going to run into some other issues by the time Jesus shows up. But All right, any you got this? This is time for a great thought paper assignment, but I won't give you one. <laughs> Let's move into verse 6 then. Now, I, what I'm doing here, I'm moving from that um, right here. I'm moving from this to the beginning of this. I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> And it sort of alludes to Lyle's question, but I think it'll be all right. Why, why is it important for us to know history? Despite the fact that your teacher loves history and <laughs> thinks it's the most important so course in any it. curriculum. But why is history so important? So we don't what? it. What? So we don't repeat it. So, well, uh, Henry Ford said the one lesson we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. That's what he said. But yes, I mean, you are to learn from history. Don't repeat it. What else? Know what we've been through. Okay. What else? It
1: informs who we are.
0: Very much so. And as I said in response to the last question, it reminds us, if very personally, it reminds us of God's faithfulness. Has he been faithful in the past? Yes. Will he be faithful for tomorrow. Yes. The Bible tells you that, but also your walk with him tells you that. And so history is very important. I one time read, and this is more of a macro view of history, but I, I really liked it. How can you understand the present if you haven't read the minutes from the previous meeting? You have to think about that, but doesn't that make sense? I mean... If you really, really want to understand what's going on in the Middle East, you have to know history. If you really want to understand what Erdogan is doing in Turkey, or what the Shiites are doing in Iran, you have to understand history. Iran is ancient Persia. And Turkey was the center of the Ottoman Empire. And Erdogan sees himself as the next sultan. It's what he wants to be. I mean, you're right. it's that struggle between, that's historic, goes way back into the ancient world. It's still going on. And you, I mean, you, you, you see that in its perspective you say, this should not surprise me. And you just, when you see that historical, these historical actors of the past, you can say, well, I understand still why they're acting the way they're acting, because that's part of who they are as a people. So what the uh, people here in Jerusalem are going to do, uh, you know, in this period, everything is settled now uh, in terms of, of what God wanted them to do. They're going to begin with this quite astonishing, I think it is, quite astonishing preamble to the historical review. It's only a verse. You. Are Yahweh, you alone. And again, in all your translations should have that. Lord should be in capital letters. Whenever you see that in your Bible, that's always Yahweh. You are the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe. That's what all that name means. Then what did they say? You alone. So it's a renewed commitment to ethical monotheism. You alone are Yahweh. And two things. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. Host means the stars and all the other stuff. The earth and all that is in it. The seas and all that is in them. Okay, so the first thing they say in this preamble of praise, is you are Yahweh. Yahweh alone. There's no one else like you. And the very first thing they say about him is what? He's the creator. He's the creator of all things. Heaven and earth. It's called a merism. The two opposites. There's nothing else but besides heaven and earth. And everything in them. So they're reaffirming Genesis 1 and 2. They're reaffirming one of the major premises of the Bible. God is the creator of all things. a The purposeful, intelligent, intentional creator of all things. So a verse like that immediately eliminates any randomness to the appearance of life on earth. It, it el- immediately eliminates a statement that Carl Sagan made in 1973. We humans are just a cosmic accident. That was a guy with a double PhD in science, very well known, which is probably one of the most idiotic things everyone, anyone has ever said. They're affirming that God is the creator, and then look at this, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven, host of heaven is a reference in the Bible to the angels. And the angels worship you. Now, I want to talk about this second item, and you preserve all of them. What does that mean? You preserve all of them. What does that mean?
1: I was wondering if it didn't mean uh, that they had uh, that the Lord still maintains the oceans and the things that he created. You
0: know, That's exactly what it means. That's exactly what it means. Jim, what did you say? Sustains it. Yeah, That's another way to, to say it. He sustains it. Now, th- there's a little word that goes with this. This is an element of God's providence. God's not an absentee landlord. God is one who creates and then sustains. I encourage you, we won't take the time to do it, but I encourage you to go to Colossians chapter 1, 15, 16, 17 because it says of Jesus... He created all things, and this is the phrase he uses in in, in 117, and he holds all things together. Amen. He preserves, he sustains it. Now just think about that for a minute. Uh, preserves all things. Um, What holds everything together? You know, the Hubble telescope with her the majestic, incredible photographs that we all have loved to, to view over these last years, It'll illustrate to us that this universe is way beyond anything anyone ever envisioned. These spectacular photographs of galaxies and star clusters and all this stuff. And we know all this is moving. All these galaxies are in motion, let alone, you know, little Earth spinning around on its axis and then revolving around the sun all that stuff. we just a little, tiny little speck. And, you know, I was reading, it's going to sound weird, but I was reading a biography of Albert Einstein because I'm trying to understand Einstein. He's an incredible guy to understand because he was a Jewish guy, fled the Nazis and all of that. And he wasn't an atheist, but his view of God was really weird and really strange. But, you know, he, this is one of the statements he made in his general theory of relativity. I'm beginning to understand I'm beginning to understand how this universe operates. I'm beginning to understand how mass and energy are related, all these crazy things that he, he, he helped us understand. But he said, I still haven't figured out what holds this together. Honestly, that's a, that's a quote from him. Because his goal, it's what he called, I want to develop a theory of everything. That was his goal, a theory of everything. I want to explain how everything holds together. He said, I still haven't figured out what holds it all together. Nehemiah chapter eight, chapter nine, verse six B answers the question. God preserves it. And when you when you study then these crazy people who study in chemistry and get down and you know, when I was in college, chemistry I studied, you know, that matter is made up of molecules, which are made up of atoms, which are made up of, of, of a nucleus, of protons and, and 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 neutrons, and electrons spinning around them. Well, now, you know, it's way deeper than that. They're talking about dark forces and uh, uh, quarks and muons and all these things. But, you know, I had a friend of mine who has a PhD in molecular biology. We still haven't figured out what holds it all together. (laughs) We understand how it works, but we don't understand what holds it all together. The Bible keeps saying it is God who holds it all together. He created it all. He created the the muons and the quarks and the dark force and all these things that they try to understand, give names to. But God's the one who holds it all together. He preserves what he created. His providence is real. He's engaged constantly, continually with his created world. Amen. Amen. Jim.
1: Can you distinguish between the heavens and the multitude, or the heaven, it's, it talks about the multitude. Are they like two different places?
0: The host of heaven? That's a reference to the angels.
1: Says, um, even the, all of the you made the heavens even the highest heavens, which I presume is space and stars and all of that. And then he says, you gave life to everything, including the multitudes of heaven who worship you. So I, are we talking about two different, I don't know what they call them, creations or... And it's just not worth
0: the answer I understand. Well, the ESV translates it this way: "You have made the heaven, the heaven, of heavens, with all their host." Okay, is that where you are in in that? Okay, yeah. Um, I was hoping nobody would ask that question, but um, <laughs> I can no, it, there. A place. It is. It is. And is it part of the universe? I guess is where I'm. What I'm coming down to. Well, well, it is in the sense that God created it, so it is a part of the universe. Jim, the best thing we can do, and this is that's a really good question, the best thing we can do is the Bible seems to talk about three heavens. Initial heaven would be the atmosphere you know, that we understand and know and so on. And then, then above that would be the heavens as the universe where all the stars and galaxies are, but then there's a third heaven which is the residence of God, where his throne is. For example, Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, I was taken up to the third heaven. And he had this remarkable vision and all that stuff. And other references in the Old Testament to third heaven. So the only way I can understand this is all the three layers of heaven, or all the three separate, God created all those, including heaven where he resides, where his throne is. And where the host, the host of heaven—that is—that's a lot of other places in the Bible. That's a reference to the angels, the spiritual world that is unseen to us, but is, is still very, very real. Part of that third heaven. Am I answering in your question? I mean, it's just—it's it's a, it's a profound verse. I mean, it's loaded with so much. That is, and I just think it's remarkable for these people to say this. They're just—they're saying this is our God. He's not Marduk of the Babylonians who fought with Tiamat to get control of the, of the deep. That's silly. I mean, this isn't, this isn't Ahura Mazda, the god of the Persians or Zoroastrian religion, who's fighting an eternal battle with Ariman, the force of evil. This isn't, that's not how they're seeing him. And they just came out of that. Our god is Yahweh, Yahweh alone, who created everything and who sustains everything. Nobody in the ancient world could say that. The Babylonians would shake their heads. We don't understand what you mean by that. The Zoroastrians in Persia would get a little closer, but they have Aramon, who's contending with. It's, this, is, this is a statement of God that is unique to Judeo, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yahweh alone is a single creator of all things and a single creator, single sustainer of all things. There aren't multiple gods doing this. There's one. So
1: it would be fair to say that all of creation is is time and space. That's right. Things are physical. That's right. But God exists beyond all of that. That's right. He's not in time. He's not in space. That's right. So when I talk about the heavens, it's the...
0: And the word we give in theology is this is the transcendence of God. He is beyond the physical world, but he's involved in the physical world. He's not, I love that figure of speech. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not a giant clockmaker who makes a perfect clock, winds it, and leaves. No. His providence is real. He is involved, continually and constantly, in sustaining his creation, and they're going to get to this in working out his redemptive plan. I mean, this is why, the more you study this about God, isn't it amazing? And then you take all that the bible says about him and then you act you add this he knows you he knows your name and he loves you and he reached down and redeemed you through Jesus Christ Jim isn't through a scripture that says where can I go psalm 139 yeah you yeah. know that you are not there and mm-hmm. David says wherever I go you're there you yeah. know This is why, it, and this is real, can can I make a very dogmatic statement here? I hope I don't offend anybody. This is why when you say God and you start thinking about God, the very first thing that you should always review as you go through who God is, is he is the creator of all things. It is a direct, verbal, by God's words. Let there be. God is the creator of all things. Now listen to me. If he is the creator of all things, does he have the right to establish the ethical standards for his world? I mean, the answer to that is yes, isn't it? Yes, He has the right to do that. Well, I don't like those, some people say. I don't like those ethical standards. Well, the way the Bible presents it is those ethical standards are for your good. Your creator is saying to you, this is how I want you to live. And this isn't constraining you. This is freeing you. And that's the problem. But when Jesus says in John 8, if the Son makes you free, S-O-N, if the Son makes you free, you will be free. Not a libertinism to do whatever you want, but free to appreciate and understand and live abundantly in the framework that I've created. And I'm going to give you the power and the Holy Spirit and my word for you to do that. Just intuitively, just intuitively, if you have children, you know, freedom doesn't mean to do whatever you want. Would you let your children do that? You have a six-year-old, do whatever you want, no boundaries. That kid will either be dead, (laughs) because he'll do something that will be life-threatening, or run away and get into danger, or you're going to be raising the next juvenile delinquent who will be in jail most of his life, right? So why then do we say, well, we don't want to do that for children, but for adults, autonomy, which is the chief ethic of our world today, of our culture today, do whatever you want. Just don't hurt anybody, but do whatever you want. so it's just, it's amazing to me. So I guess I'm just pretty dense. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Verse 7. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to, I, if you don't mind, we're going to read this. This is not to be a cure for insomnia. This is for you to see the Old Testament reviewed from the vantage point of God's people. And what I'm going, time we get there, I'm going to highlight. What I want you to see here is, what are the attributes of God that the history of Israel reveals. Do you understand what I just said? What attributes of God does the history of Israel reveal? If you study the history of uh, of Israel and you're doing this theologically, what will be the list of God's attributes you'll have by the time you're done studying? That's what we want to do. So each time we come across one, I'm going to highlight it. and, And if need be, we'll define it. That's what they're doing. You're not only the creator and sustainer of all things, you are the God of our history. And you have revealed your attributes to us. Studying our history reveals more about who you are. There you are, Yahweh Elohim. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, Genesis twelve. Because Genesis one through eleven is the creation account and those early those early encounters. Then God selects a person who will give be the progenitor of a whole nation of people that will produce the salvation, the opportunity for the salvation of the human race. And brought him out of the world the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. He found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 12. Land, seed, blessing. To give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Gergesite. And you have kept your promise. Why? For you are righteous. First attribute, you are righteous. The evidence of that is you keep your word. I say this to my children and I'm, I'm, I'm saying it to them now, but God keeps his promises. If God makes a promise to you, you can bank on it, take it to the bank. He will keep that promise. So they're just reviewing and so they start with Abraham. He's the father of their nation. He's the the beginning of their nation. Just studying about Abraham, what does it show? God's righteous. He keeps his word. He made a covenant. Genesis twelve, seven, he promised them land. And he just the author just reviewed. You kept your promise. You promised you'd do that. Abraham's two thousand. Two thousand BC, roughly. It's the easy way to remember it. When did God fulfill that promise? In 1399 B.C. That was the end of the conquest under Joshua. So 2000 B.C., 1399 B.C. God kept it. It took a while. I mean, that's hundreds of years, but he kept his promise. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, so we've now shifted <laughs> to the Exodus, and we saw you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders. That's Exodus seven, Exodus eight, Exodus nine, Exodus ten. Against Pharaoh, there are the ten plagues. You, you're familiar with those, and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What does that mean? You made a name for yourself.
1: He demonstrated that he could have, create miracles.
0: And he dem- yeah, he demonstrated who he is. Listen, now listen, the only way to understand Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10, when the 10 plagues that God levels against the Egyptians, is God is making war on the Egyptian worldview. That's what he's, he's dismantling it. What is he showing? He's showing to the Israelites who are about to be liberated from 400 years of captivity. And he's showing to the Egyptians what? He is the one true and only God. Amun-Ra isn't the one true God. They had many, they had thousands of gods. And one of their head gods was Amun-Ra, the guy who on a chariot, God who pulled the sun across the sky every day. And then he went down into Hades, into the underworld, and fought there. Then he got on the chariot and pulled it across the sky the next. Day. Then he went down in the underworld, fought, he fought Osiris, and came out and pulled it. That's how, that's how they explained that. <laughs> what does the Bible say? Yahweh Elohim created the sun. Yahweh Elohim established the seasons and the time frame for the human race based on the movement of the things he created. So who's superior? And by the way, if he chooses, he can blacken the sky in the middle of the day, and that's what he did in one of the plagues, didn't he? Egypt, who was utterly and totally dependent on Amun-Ra, the sun god, what did God do? He darkened the sky. He made it pitch black. Who's the true God? That's what, and what he got it when he said that, he made a name for himself. He showed who he is. His signs and wonders, verse 10, proved that he is who he says he is. He demonstrated that to children of Israel. He demonstrated that to the Egyptians. And you know what's really interesting when you study the history of Egypt? Amenhotep II was the pharaoh of, of, the, of, of the Exodus. The very next pharaoh was Akhenaten. His wife, by the way, was Nefertiti. You've maybe heard of her. Do you know what he tried to do? Introduce monotheism to Egypt. He moved the capital south. He tried to reconstitute that. Now, he didn't last very long. He was assassinated. And historians have been baffled. Why did he do this? Why did he try to introduce monotheism to a thoroughly pagan, thoroughly polytheistic culture? Was it the influence of the Exodus? I mean, you know, no secular historian is ever going to agree with that question. But it, it raises, it's interesting. It's really, because it baffles historians. They can't figure out why he tried to do that. So it's just a fascinating, one of those fascinating twists in history that the Bible maybe gives us some insight as to why he tried to do that. And you divided the sea before then. So that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Isn't that a great simile, as a stone in mighty waters? By a pillar of cloud you led them, pillar of fire in the night, so that they had nowhere to go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, good commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments, Statutes, and the law of Moses, your servant. This is the Mosaic covenant. Abrahamic covenant is in uh, verse, uh, what is that? Verse 8. This is the Mosaic covenant. He gave them bread from heaven, that's manna, brought water from the out of the rock, Exodus 6, 16, 17, told them to go and possess the land. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks. Isn't that a great metaphor? Stiffened their necks. Can't you see that? Stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to slavery. That's from Numbers 14. Now, we're near the end, but I want to really embellish this verse. Middle of verse uh, 17. But, now look at this. Verse 17. They refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders you performed, stiffened their neck, appointed the leader to return to slavery. The middle of that verse, what's the word? But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not Forsake them. Why is God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love? Because He's a God of the covenant. He made an unconditional unilateral covenant with them. He's going to discipline them. He's going to be hard on them, but they are His people. And that little. Um, little I'm out of paper, so I'm going to write it here. That little phrase, steadfast love, is translating one Hebrew term. Now, I don't want you to learn Hebrew except this one. I want you to learn this word. Ten years from now, I'm going to call you up at 2 a.m. in the morning and ask you about this. (laughs) The Hebrew word is chesed. It's guttural. Chesed. Don't pronounce it out loud, but to yourself. Chesed. It's a really, really important word in the Old Testament. It's the covenant, steadfast, loyal love of God for his people. I'm going to repeat that. Chesed. The steadfast, loyal, covenant love of God for his people. More than any other single word in the Old Testament it summarized the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. He loves them. He's entered into a covenant with them. They are his people. And so that little phrase near the end of that whole sentence, <laughs> steadfast love, is one Hebrew term, chesed. Do not forget that. Your salvation and entrance into heaven depends on it. Well, at least three people laughed. Now, I'm kidding. I don't mean that. Don't believe me there. But it's one of those terms that's really rich. Um, so let's, let's look at this real quickly. Okay but you're a God ready to forgive throughout the history that the Bible deals, details, from creation to revelation, the end of time, the ushering in new heaven and new earth. Do you see that? God ready to forgive? Yes, please, somebody say, yes, Jim finally said it, yes. All over the place. Abraham, he chooses Abraham. Not because Abraham deserved and it. What does Abraham do? He goes down to Egypt. What does he do when he goes to Pharaoh? This is my sister. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. This is my sister. Is that true? No. no he just lied. He isn't really concerned about Sarah. He's concerned if Pharaoh finds out it's his wife, what's Pharaoh going to do? Kill him. So he can get his wife. So, Pharaoh, this is my sister. I mean, it's unbelievable. Does God forgive him? Yes. He does. And you have Jacob, his grandson. Jacob, a duplicitous, deceitful conniver who gets everything his way. He knows he's the promised covenant son. He knows God's going to bless him. But what does he do? He manipulates and connives to get at his. He is the epitome of Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. (laughs) I mean, does God, yes. Genesis 32, he breaks Jacob, changes his name, and Jacob hobbles into into the promised land. God forgives. David, does he forgive David? Peter, Peter said, Lord, no matter what anybody else does, I'm going to hang with you. I don't care what happens. I'll never deny you what happens. Three times. And the third time, he curses God in his denial. Does God forgive him? End of John. Jesus is cooking breakfast for them. Peter jumps out of the boat, runs, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? How many times does he ask him that question? Three times. To neutralize his denial. So when you and I read, ready to forgive, every one of you in this room can attest to that. That's our God. He's a God of covenant who forgives. Aren't you glad he does? Two of you said amen. Amen. Anyway. I think I better stop here. I Help me to remember to start right in the middle of verse 17. I'm not, we're not done with that. Remember, what what we're doing is we're studying this historical overview to reveal the attributes of God. And that's one of its values. That's what they're doing. So, I'm going to pray. This is a rich section. Oh, please, absolutely.
1: Going back to verses 7 and 8 where it talks about God being righteous because he kept his promise. It, it, there's more of that than that, isn't there? I mean, he, was he righteous in choosing Abram over others? Was he righteous in uh, Dispossessing the Canaanites and all of those, I mean, there's. it seems to me there's more than just keeping the promises, more of the kind of promises he
0: gives. Well, at the heart of that Hebrew term righteous, at the heart of that is another word, holiness. That God is absolutely holy. So he never does anything that is unjust, never does anything that is duplicitous. He is perfectly Righteous. And every time he exercises one of his attributes, he exercises that in perfection. In other words, his justice never ever contradicts his grace, or his mercy, or his love. And so it's that, and I'm really glad you asked that. I I should have commented a little more. That term, it's a great Hebrew term, is at the very core of who God is. Holy and righteous. And everything else he does, I'm not sure that's the right way to say it, but Everything else he does kind of flows from that. He's absolutely holy. R.C. Sproul, Yemeni, he's with the Lord now, but R.C. Sproul wrote a great book years ago called The Holiness of God. And that's his argument, that the most important attribute for us to really understand about God is that he's holy. Everything else that makes sense from that. We've got to quit. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book we're studying. As uh, these exiles came back from 70 years... Many of their parents were the ones who had gone into idolatry. They've learned that lesson. They're back in the land. They've rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the wall, Jerusalem secure. They've reinstituted sacrifices, reinstituted the priesthood. Now they're renewing their covenant with you. A renewal and spiritual revival has occurred in chapter 8. It's magnificent. And as they review your interaction with them in history, they're reviewing your attributes this is who you are you've demonstrated to us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and it's on that basis that they want to renew that covenant commitment Lord we are grateful for all of us this side of the cross Jesus once for all sacrificed for us we've appropriated it by faith we're walking with you in loving obedience and we're just being reminded over and over and over and over again that it is worthwhile to trust in your promises and to rest in your character. You're a wonderful God. You keep covenant. And you never, ever, ever take back your word. So we thank you for that tremendous reminder of who you are. Bless us as we go our separate ways. May we represent you well in what we do and say in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Amen.